Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined this week, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we said last week that uh, the markets were having a very bad patch, a run of uh, several weeks in succession of equity markets falling and, and bond yields rising. And at least uh, in terms of the equity markets, you've had, uh, unfortunately, had the same thing again this week, have you not? Yeah, I think we're probably beginning to sound a bit like a, a broken record, frankly. I mean, the last positive week that we had was the final week of March, which feels like some time ago now. I mean, the data, the numbers for this week, and, and obviously we're looking at this after only four days. We're recording this on Friday morning. The investment company sector down 1.4% in the first four days of the week. And that compares with a decline of 1.3% for the FTSE All Share, so the wider UK market. Where does that leave us overall year to date? Well, investment companies are down nearly 17% now year to date. And that compares with a fall of about 2.5% for the wider UK market. But we've also seen discounts widen out over recent weeks. And we've, we've talked about this once or twice. I think the sector average discounts about 7.6% at the moment. That compares with an average about 5.2% for the year to date. And in contrast, uh, it averaged about 3.1% last year. But it's difficult to find good news around at the moment. I mean, we had Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, warning of uh, apocalyptic food prices in his testimony this week. We also saw UK inflation hit 9%, uh, which is the highest level in in 40 years. And UK consumer confidence uh, is kind of bouncing off historic lows. But obviously, this isn't just a UK story. Uh, We've had commentary around how Putin is weaponizing global food supplies. And I think India this week banned their wheat exports. China's industrial production was down quite sharply in April. Uh, The IMF is warning of inflationary shocks. And in fact, uh, Sweden looks set to join NATO alongside Finland. So the storm clouds are gathering. Difficult to find any hint of sunshine on the horizon, frankly. I'm afraid that is right. I think it's absolutely right. And uh, could it be that we're actually heading into uh, what old timers like me might call a kind of proper bear market? We haven't had one since obviously the global financial crisis. We've had sharp sell-offs like uh, obviously the pandemic was one and uh, the last quarter of 2018 was another. Uh, But the difference this time, what is led to believe indeed, is that the Federal Reserve is not going to blink this time as it did at the end of 2018 when it worried about what the impact of a falling stock market might be. It does look as if we will at least uh, have to test whether we're going to go into a uh, proper bear market or not uh, at this point. I mean, the US market is down, I think, 19%, something like that, the year to date, which is pretty close to this sort of standard definition of uh, 20% being a, a significant market decline, as opposed to just a correction. And in that context, at least, I suppose you could say that the performance of investment trusts, obviously influenced by discount movements, widening, as you've said, But also the fact that it is overall, the investment trust universe is fairly dominated by large overseas investment companies. So it therefore is more likely to follow what's happening to global markets rather than just the UK market itself. Uh, Would you agree with that or is that uh, rather too simplistic? No, I think that's a very fair point. I think there is a bias to overseas equities. There's probably bias to growth, to be honest, though we've seen that in reverse a little bit this year. I mean, clearly within the investment companies sector, we do have those more alternative income plays, renewable energy or infrastructure in general, 
uh, would be a good case in point, and they're not an insignificant amount of the sector now. But yeah, overall, you know, we are underweight as a sector, underweight the UK market. Okay, well, before we go on, I must mention the fact that uh, if you are a listener to this podcast, which obviously you are if you're <laughs> hearing us now, Simon and I will be appearing on Tuesday this uh, coming week at the uh, Mellow Trusts and Funds event in Chiswick. So if you want to come along and hear us, uh, well, I don't know how to describe it, discuss what's going on. I was going to say waffle on, but that would be a little unkind. Uh, discuss <laughs> what's going on. That will be an opportunity. We will be talking about what's happened to the market this year overall and uh, particularly what's happening in the investment trust sector. And meanwhile, if you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, we've got a, a profile this week of 3i Infrastructure and a series of other articles, including a, a quick update on our portfolios, some of which I'm happy to say are doing uh, rather better than the uh, overall averages. So let's kick off with fundraising. Let's start with uh, Home REIT, ticker H-O-M-E, Home. What are they doing? Well, they've announced that they're looking to raise up to about £150 million for replacing of new shares. Uh, the issue price for those shares will be 115p per share, and that represents just short of a 5% premium to their NAV at the end of February, and a discount uh, nearly about 6% or so to the closing share price just ahead of when they made the announcement. They've got uh, a pipeline valued at about £300 million set up, so that's why they need the additional capital. And that pipeline apparently has an average net acquisition yield of 5.84%. So the net placing proceeds, should they be successful, are expected to be substantially invested or committed within three to six months following admission. So the placing will close on the 26th of May with dealings in the new shares expected to commence on or around the 31st of May. Well, this is a very good example, this particular trust, I think, of uh, you know the changes that we've seen in the investment trust sector with alternative assets coming into focus, and particularly uh, trusts that offer an alternative source of yield. I mean, perhaps you could just remind us, Home REIT uh, basically uh, acquires and builds kind of high-quality homeless accommodation in the UK, and the key feature of that being most of them are let on long-term index-linked leases. Uh, and it's grown pretty quickly since it came to the market, has it not? It's become quite a substantial... Uh, company already, even though it's only been uh, on the market for about 18 months or so. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So I've got it on a market cap of about £663 million at the moment. I mean, they came to the market back in October 2020. Uh, they raised £241 million at that stage. Uh, and then they came back to the market in September last year, and they raised £350 million. And that was significantly oversubscribed. So they have done well in terms of uh, attracting capital, putting that capital to work. So, uh, I mean, they're trading on a share price of about 118p or so at the moment, and they offer a, a yield, certainly on a historic basis, of about 3.4%. Okay, so they'll be interesting to see how that one goes. I imagine that will go fairly well. You would think so anyway. Let's talk about Ecofin US Renewables, uh, ticker R-N-E-W. Not one we talk about very often, but uh, give us a quick update on that. Yes, so they've announced that they've raised $13 million. The bulk of that came through a placing, though there was a retail offering as well. Those shares will be issued at a price of $1.5. The dealing is expected from the 24th of May. But they were looking to raise up to $25 million, which I think probably just goes to show that it is a tough market out there, certainly in terms of fundraising. That issue price represented a 4% premium to NAV. And the idea is they were looking to repay their credit facility. And they also had a pipeline, which they were valuing at about 51 
million dollars. So it'd be interesting to see if they can actually use that capital to access that uh, pipeline. Indeed. Well, as you say, not much fundraising going on at the moment for obvious reasons, except in the infrastructure and renewable space in particular. That seems a very clear trend. Home REIT, perhaps uh, an alternative uh, source as well. We're going to be talking a little later on about some trusts which are buying back shares or having to buy back shares. So there's money moving both ways. But let's talk about some results now. Let's move on to some global results. JP Morgan Elect Managed Growth, ticker JPE. Perhaps you could tell us what they've had to say. So these were interim results for six months to the 28th of February. In that time, they had an NAV total return down about 6.8%. That compared with a decline in their benchmark about 0.1%. Uh, the share price total return was down about 9.3%. So underperformance was attributed to the market's rotation towards value and also negative sentiment for technology exposure. So just to remind people if they're not familiar with this one, I mean, JP Morgan Elect has three share classes actually. So this is the managed growth, which is a fund of funds, predominantly investment trust, but not exclusively, uh, but looking at global equities. It's a team led by Katie Fornicroft, very experienced manager, but there's also a managed income leg that we're going to talk about a little bit later on in terms of the UK. Uh, and there's also a cash leg as well. And the idea that shareholders can flip between the three different share classes on a quarterly basis, should they so wish. And it's a kind of tax efficient, certainly for UK based investors, conversion. But certainly in this period, uh, managed growth just struggled in that six month period. OK, well, we'll come on to the other one shortly. Next up is Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, ticker SMT which uh, has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride, as we know. Extraordinarily successful period uh, around the time of the pandemic. And now, since then, a very quite uh, significant share price fall, put it mildly. But they produced their uh, annual results, which is always a big event in the investment trust space. And uh, tell us about their results and uh, what they've been saying. These were the final results, as you say, for the year to the 31st of March. In that time, they generated an NAV total return down 13.1%. That compared to a rise of 12.8% for the FTSE All World Index. In share price terms, not quite as bad, actually. They were down 9.5% in that period. And they made the point that they've been very active in terms of buybacks and issuance. So I think they bought back about 12 million shares in that 12-month period. They issued 35 million shares. So net issuance in that 12-month period. Uh, equated to £361 million. It's worth just covering off the dividend. I think uh, it's a very small part of the, uh, the Scottish mortgage story, but that was actually up 5% year on year to 3.59p. And actually the majority is funded by realised capital reserves. But clearly a more difficult period for Scottish mortgage investment trusts. Uh, and certainly, I mean, this is the, the 12-month period, as I mentioned, to the end of March. I mean, year to date, 2022, their share price is down about 40 3% now. But certainly in this period of the results, you know, they made the comment that some of the companies have struggled into share price terms. But and this is the point, most portfolio companies are expected to deliver high levels of growth this year, despite rising interest rates and increases in the cost of living. They also made the point that the managers, um, so it's Tom Slater and the deputy manager, Lawrence Burns, very happy to stay the course, all the top 30 stocks owned 12 months previously are still held. And the argument is from the managers that uh, you know resilience during drawdowns is necessary for generating long-term returns. In terms of the changes to the portfolio, well, most of the new holdings came in the form of private companies. But it's worth just keeping an eye on that because actually, I think at the end of April now, so a month after this period of results, 
uh, that 29% of the portfolio were actually invested in private companies. One of the key messages they were obviously keen to make is that uh, despite the retirement of James Anderson, the lead manager, if you like, who's presided over this extraordinary period of strong double-digit performance over many years, there's going to be no change in the philosophy or strategy of the uh, of the trust. I think that's important to make that point. And they always said it was a long-term investment and so on. They're not just saying it because they've had a bear period. I think it is fundamental to the approach there they take. So how does this go down in the market, though? I mean, they admitted also that they'd made some mistakes in terms of being overexposed to China technology companies, which were subject to a regulatory uh, crackdown, as we know, from the Chinese authorities. Uh, but how has it gone down in the market? It's such an important um, element of the uh, investment trust universe, no longer the largest by market capitalization, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but how has it been received in the market? Yeah, I mean, in share price terms, these results didn't really have a particular impact, I would suggest. I mean, I think the story is well known, as you say, there's been no change to the investment approach or philosophy. You know, obviously, these results to the end of March, and we've had a couple of months since then. So I think there was no kind of, and this would be true for, frankly, most investment trust companies that are invested in long-only equity mandates, that invariably there isn't really a big impact in share price terms from results ordinarily. Not so true necessarily of, say, private equity or infrastructure, where you really do look to those revaluation points. But, you know, it is interesting. You picked up about the comments they made about China. And I think they are willing to say, yeah, look, you know, there are things that haven't worked as, as we'd hoped and as we'd planned. I think there's lessons to be learned. But, you know, to be fair to them, the headwinds that they've faced through their investment approach have been significant this year. Uh, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, to be down over 40% in share price terms is a pretty brutal period of performance. And I think they're certainly aware of the impact that that's having on their shareholders. But the message is, this is what we do. It's a long term story. Uh, you know, keep the faith. Interesting also, I thought, just before we move on, to note that they've still got a significant amount of gearing, or at least did have it the 31st of March. And they borrowed quite a lot of money last year at, at around 2%, which looks like a pretty good rate now for uh, the longer term. Is that a factor for them? Is that their gearing? Is that going to, uh, are they going to change that at all? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, it was 14% at the end of March. That actually gone up to 16% at the end of April. And it, it's something to keep an eye on because obviously with gearing, and you're right, they have actually borrowed on, on quite a long-term basis and, and locked in some very attractive rates. But when you do have these moments when the market's going in one direction, you've got to manage your gearing levels because they can, by definition, push up quite significantly and hurt you on the downside. It's really about getting that balance because obviously as and when market conditions change, that can be a real boost driver of returns. But uh, I'm sure that's something that they're monitoring uh, very closely. Well, it's obviously uh, become a bellwether kind of stock for many investors. It'd be interesting to see uh, what impact that has over time, this dramatic uh, drawdown in terms of share price and uh, NAV to a lesser extent. Let's talk about Securities Trust of Scotland next, another global investment trust, uh, ticker STS. They've also had uh, results for the year to 31st of March, and uh, they have a very different approach, and uh, they've done rather better, of course. Yeah, I think that's right. So the NAV total return was up 16.8% in that 12-month period, and that compared to a rise of 10.8% for the Lipper Global Equity Global Income Index. So uh, by that, I think you can take the, their peer group of global equity income funds. Share price, total return up 17.4%. And this particular investment trust has a zero discount policy. So since December 2020, it's been uh, part of the Troy Asset Management Stable. So James Harris responsible for this one. And in order to ensure that that zero discount policy was met, they bought back about 3 million shares in the period, actually, 
and issued about 100,000 or so. But yes, incredibly different portfolio to Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. So a big focus on what they describe as kind of high quality, resilient companies. So what worked for them in the period? Consumer staples names, so Diageo, British American Tobacco, some names in the technology sector, so IT, so Paychex, Microsoft as well. I mean, they did have detractors and they mentioned Unilever and Clorox as well. They also gave some quite interesting commentary around the the changes to the portfolio. So James Harris sold his position in Verizon and bought Boston properties. Hargreaves Lansdowne was in and out of the portfolio during the 12-month period, which they made the point. That's quite unusual. They tend to be quite long-term investors. But in the case of Hargreaves, I think it was quite a small position. They were looking to build it and then realised that actually the sands were shifting a little bit in that area and becoming very, very competitive. They also sold down their position in Fever Tree and bought Domino's Pizza. So I think you kind of get an idea of the kind of companies that they like. It's also worth keeping an eye on the on the revenue side. So actually that was down about 19% year on year. And that's a, a kind of function of the way that Troy's running this portfolio. So in the olden days, they, they would have had option writing. That's no longer the case. And also um, they're happy to have lower yielding stocks. So, you know, we have seen the dividend rebase on this one and it's yielding about two and a half percent on a historic basis now. So a good example that there are always alternatives between growth and value to be had. And this obviously is a very good example of a different approach. Troy have been in charge. How long have they been in charge of this one now? It's not that long. No, not that long. December 2020. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's move on and talk about JP Morgan, a multi-asset growth and income, ticker M-A-T-E or MATE. They've produced an annual report and results for the year to the 28th of February. That's right. And in that time, they saw an NAV total return of 8.1%. That compared to a rise of 6% for their reference index. The share price total return actually came in a lot better. It was up 18.7%. And that was a reflection of the fact that the discount narrowed. I think it was at about 12, 13%. It's come into 4%. And actually, since then, I think it's uh, briefly traded on a small premium. But this portfolio, probably as the name would suggest, is a multi-asset portfolio. It's very diversified, so you've got equity exposure in there, but you've got other asset classes. So what worked well for them were actually equities were a key contributor, particularly what they call physical global equity. Fixed income was neutral, while infrastructure was a positive contributor as well. So this is run by Katie Fornicroft and Gareth Whitcomb, but Katie responsible for the, the JP Morgan Elect Managed Growth Fund as well. So very much about asset allocation. So what did they do in this period? Well, actually, they reduced European equity exposure. That was in favour of the US. There's also a dividend story here as well. And they've increased their dividend. It's gone from 4p to 4.1p. That is supported by revenue reserves. But their target dividend for the financial year 2023 is 4.4p, which represents a 7% increase. So that fund is actually yielding on a historic basis 4.1% at the moment. So within that flexible investment peer group, it's one of the stronger yielders. So this in that sector, they're uh, they're competing, if you like, or be comparable to such trusts as uh, Capital Gearing and uh, the BMO Managed Portfolio Trusts and so on. And uh, we don't talk about this one. It's quite still quite small, this trust, isn't it? And, and how has it performed? When did we first uh, hear about it? When did it come to the market? Yeah, so it's got a market cap of about £80 million or so, and it was a, a reconstruction. So it was a previous JP Morgan investment trust. So a number of years ago, it went through a process of reconstruction. I think it might have been a split capital investment trust, actually. Um, but if you look at its numbers, so five years NAV total return, it's up 30%. And that compares with 
So there are a number of different investment trusts that you could compare in that space. I think you mentioned capital gearing, personal assets, and that's certainly valid. I suspect given the fact they're trying to grow their capital and income, i.e. the dividends, quite an important part of the story, then to compare it with, say, Aberdeen diversified income and growth is probably not a crazy thing to do. That's got a high yield, 5.5%, but that's up 12% NAV total return over that five-year period. Okay, so let's move on now and talk more specialist sectors, starting in the UK. And we've got a lot of uh, equity income trusts to talk about here. So they've all produced interim results for the same period. Uh, so we can actually legitimately compare them, I think. Let's kick off with uh, Aberdeen equity income. As I said, interim results for six months to the 31st of March. That's right. And they generated an NAV total return up 2.5%. That compared to a rise of 4.7% for the FTSE All Share. Though actually, in share price terms, they were up 8.6% as their discount narrowed in from about 8% to 3%. So the NAV underperformance was largely attributed to a a poor performance in November, actually. But essentially, over the period, the fund benefited from a rotation from growth to value, particularly in the first quarter of this year. But relative to the index, they benefited from their exposure to resources, though actually their positioning in financials and consumer discretionary detracted. Gearing worked for them. They they averaged about 13% gearing in this period, so that certainly worked. And they saw a pickup in their revenue return per share. That moved from 7.74p up to 8.75p. And actually, they declared dividends totaling 10.8p. So in other words, the dividend was uncovered. The board made it clear that they intend to declare total dividends for their financial year 2022 of 21.8p. So that's the full year dividend. And that represents a rise of 2.8%. And it was quite clear from the results that the board are very focused on that dividend becoming covered uh, over the financial year. And on top of that, delivering a real growth in dividends. Yeah, I think that's going to be a common theme for all these uh, trusts, is it not? We uh, The yield is obviously so important, uh, particularly at a time like this. Let's move on then and talk about Finsbury growth and income next. This is uh, Ticker FGT, managed by another very high-profile fund manager, Nick Train. They've had the interim results, as I said, for the same period. What were his numbers like? Not quite as good, actually. So that uh, six-month period to the end of March, the NAV total return was down 2.2%. As mentioned, the FTSE All Share was up 4.7%. And in share price terms, down about 3% or so. So it has been a tough period for Nick Train, uh, obviously a very high-profile manager. There have been no substantive changes to the portfolio. I think there was one takeover, Daily Mail and General Trust, but essentially, you know, Nick's backing a portfolio of companies that have served him very well over the long term. And I think he made the observation in the results that actually those portfolio companies are performing well in operational terms, that obviously it's the share price that's the issue. The weighted average return on capital is above 15%. So he's put uh, quite an emphasis on these companies continuing to deliver. In terms of the weighted average price earnings ratio for the portfolio, well, it stands at 25 times. It's a kind of very common uh, valuation metric looking at equities, and that would be higher than you would see across the whole UK market. And Nick would argue that that's actually a reflection of the quality of, of the companies that he tends to look at. But yeah, certainly a, a more difficult period for Nick. Yes, I think the argument that he makes and uh, you know others have made, Charlie Munger, you know, Warren Buffett's partner, always makes this point, then over the very long run, and of course, over the very long run, we're all dead. But in the, over the long run, the return on capital, return on equity in particular, is a pretty good guide to what kind of return you're going to get. So if you have a 15% return on capital on average, and obviously assuming that your companies continue to deliver that, then over a longer period of time, you're going to get a return of around the same amount, 15% or so. But 
that relies on you being able to pick the stocks that can maintain that ability to achieve that kind of profitability. So that's an interesting one. And let's move on and talk about uh, JP Morgan Elect uh, Managed Income, another part of this uh, multi-share class trust you mentioned earlier on. Ticker JPEI. That's right. So this leg is focused on UK equities. It sits within the UK equity income peer group. And again, interim results, six months to the end of February. NAVITO returned, they were down 2.5% and that compared with a rise of 2.4% for the benchmark. In share price terms, well, that was down about 3.6%. And actually, underperformance was attributed to supply chain issues driving poor performance for the, the portfolio companies. So John Baker and Katan Patel at JP Morgan are responsible for this one. And they made the point that actually um, they are seeing a, a big pickup in terms of the dividends that they're receiving from their portfolio companies. So I think they're talking about, you know, there was clearly a massive decrease back in 2020, down about 38%, and then a, a rise of 22% in terms of the underlying dividends last year. This year, they expect those dividends to grow by 5%, which is not insignificant, but as we now know, possibly might be behind inflation for the year. So that's certainly a metric worth keeping an eye on. So JP Morgan Elect Managed Income have paid two interim dividends during this period, and they total 2.2p. Okay, so that was six months to February, so slightly different benchmark comparator there. But let's go back to Lonely Investment Company, ticker LWI, and they've had interim results for the six months to the 31st of March. So the same period as we've talked about for the Aberdeen Trust and Finsbury Growth and Income. And uh, how did they do? Again, they underperformed, not by a massive margin, but they were down 0.7% in NAV to the return terms. Again, FTSE all share up 4.7. But actually, their share price fed a little bit better. So the share price total return was up 3.5%. And that was a function of the fact the discount narrowed from about 9%. It came into about 5, 5.5%. But in NAV terms, the underperformance was primarily attributable to the portfolio's overweight allocation to medium and smaller companies. And this is you know, very much part and parcel of James Henderson and Laura Fall, very experienced management team. That's kind of what they do. They're a kind of all share, unconstrained investment approach, have a bit of a value controlling bias. And certainly mid and small cap names haven't particularly worked in this period. But their best performers were Anglo-American, Shell, Serica Energy, HSBC and National Grid. Their detractors included names such as Studio Retail, Reach, K3 Capital, Senior and IP Group but always worth keeping an eye on earnings per share. And they'd increased, so period on period. So I think in the first half of 2021, it came at 1.28p. That was up to 1.72p, but it's still below the 2019 pre-pandemic level of 2.22p. So that's going back to that commentary before from the JP Morgan Fund about uh, the dividend growth. They've declared dividends totaling 3.05p. So that's up 1.7% period on period. But again, that will be an uncovered dividend. Okay, so now let's talk about Schroeder Income Growth, ticker SCF. Uh, they've had interim results for the six months to the end of February, rather like the JP Morgan Elect uh, Managed Income one. How do their numbers compare? Yeah, and again, a small underperformance. It's a, it's a pretty common story. Their NAV total return was down about 0.5%. That compared to a rise of 2.4% for their benchmark. Share price total return, not dissimilar, really, down about 0.8%, just as the discount widened slightly. There was some discussion about the portfolio revenue. Again, it's a UK equity income fund. So they were up 49% period on period and actually now only 18% below the pre-pandemic level. They've declared two interim dividends for the year. So their financial year runs to the end of August 2022. 
So they've declared two interim dividends totaling 5p, and that's in line with the previous years. And they've had to utilise revenue reserves in order to do that. But they've made it clear their aim is to maintain their dividend hero status. We've talked quite a bit about dividend heroes over the last few years, and they very much want to maintain that status. And they're monitoring the ability of the portfolio to deliver a dividend rising in line with medium term inflation. So I'm not quite sure where medium term inflation is going to rest, but that's no. uh, really something they want to achieve. If they know, would they please let us know? Exactly. <laughs> that would be good. So uh, obviously equity income has been pretty dull space for a while, but you'd think it might be making a bit of a comeback now with the shift from growth to value and so on, and the emphasis on, on yield going into what might be a tough market. I guess there's Two things to say there. I mean, on the one hand, well, perhaps you could fill us in on what kind of yields we're getting from the equity income sector in the UK. But I guess, I mean, there must be a concern if if we are going into a period of you know slower economic growth or this, the fallout from all these events we talked about at the beginning. And these investment trusts, many of them are still not got their dividend receipts back to levels before the pandemic and may not be covered. I mean, that's going to be a concern, is it not, uh, about the sustainability of the dividend? Uh, albeit that everybody wants to keep their dividend hero status. Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, look, as mentioned, we have seen a recovery in, in uh, the revenue that they've received. But as mentioned here, in a number of cases, they're still not paying covered dividends. So what that means is you have to dip into revenue reserves. And most of these investment trusts will have revenue reserves. Or if they're starting to deplete those, then seek shareholder approval to pay an element of capital profits out. So there are a number of kind of levers that investment trust companies can pull. And that's the reason why there's an advantage with the investment trust structure in terms of providing greater dividend certainty. That's not a promise or a guarantee that dividends will always be maintained or continue to grow, but it gives the board, and it is a board decision, more options. I mean, to your point about yields at the moment, the average dividend yield for a UK equity income investment trust on a weighted average basis is about 4% or so. I mean, there is a range. So we mentioned Finsby growth and income, that's about 2.2% actually. And that uh, they've seen a lot of uh, dividend contraction over the years because their capital performance has been so strong. So they're certainly at one end uh, of the spectrum. Some of the other names that we mentioned, JP Morgan Elect Managed Income, that's yielding about 4.9. Lowland about 4.8, not too far behind them. The Shared Income Growth Fund about 4.2 on a historic basis. These are all historic numbers. But Aberdeen Equity Income is about 5.5%. So, you know, that is certainly on, on the higher side within the peer group. Okay, well, that's the one we're going to be looking at, I think, a, a fair deal, the UK equity income sector. is still quite an important sector, uh, though it uh, has been quite dull for the last uh, few years. Let's talk about overseas trust now. Bailey Gifford European Growth Trust, ticker BGEU. This is interim results also for the six months to the 31st of March. And, uh, well, most of the Bailey Gifford uh, Growth Trusts have been taking a bit of a beating. Is this one uh, any exception? No. In a nutshell, no, it's been a tough period, actually. So the NAV total return was down about 24.7%. That uh, compares with a decline of 5.2% for the fund's benchmark. In share price terms, it was even more tricky, actually down 28.8% as the discount widened. I think it was about 1% at the start of the period. and was about 7% at the end of March. It's actually gone out a little bit wider now. So I've got it, uh, well, it's kind of bounced off of 10%. It's moving around a little bit, but certainly it has seen its discount touch double digits at various stages. So obviously a tough period, uh, as the name would suggest, it's focused on European equities, it does have a growth approach, and that's clearly been a difficult place to be. Four new positions were added in the period, and shareholders approved the fact that they could invest up to 20% of total assets 
in unlisted companies, it was previously 10%. And I think at the moment, it stands about 8% invested in private companies. There was also some comment about Russian exposure as well, but that's less than 2% of the portfolio. Okay, so I mean, Bailey Gifford took this one over, uh, what, two or three years ago? And well, I guess they're just suffering the same way as because of their growth bias in the way they invest. That's not going to change either. Let's talk about JP Morgan Japanese, ticker JFJ. Similar results, six months to the 31st of March. Japan's been a pretty horrible market as well. So uh, how did these guys get on? Yeah, they struggled again, actually. So NAV total return down 24.2%. That compared to a decline of 8.7% for their benchmark. In share price terms, they were down about 23.4%. The discount narrowed a little bit just to save the numbers there. But basically, the underperformance uh, was attributed to a market rotation towards value and cyclical names. Uh, and it's worth noting that Nicholas Feindling, who's been the manager, I think, since about 2007, so a very long-standing experienced manager. I mean, he has very much a, a growth approach. In fact, my memory is I think he was once part of the Bailey Giver team many, many years ago. But, you know, he is very clearly a growth manager, and that's been tough this year. There's also been a negative foreign exchange impact, yen, as weakened or certainly during this period it had uh, due to enduring low interest rates and obviously inflation remains low. But the key detractors, including Kaon's Benefit One, Recruit Holdings, LaserTech, Nyan uh, M&A Center, but they're still geared. So the gearing stood about 12.5% at the end of March. So as we said, it's been a tough period for Japan. I mean, now looking at the list of uh, Japanese comparators and uh, well, most of them have fallen quite sharply over the last 12 months or so. What figures do you have on that? No, I think that's fair, a fair comment. So JP Morgan Japanese is down 20%. That would be true of Fidelity. The Fidelity Japan Trust also down 20 Bailey Gifford Japan down 21%. Those funds that have done a bit better, uh, and there is a dispersion of returns here. So if you look at Aberdeen Japan, they're down just 12%. And then we've got two in positive territory over that 12-month period. So Shredder Japan growth actually up 1% but CC Japan Income and Trust actually up 8% over that 12-month period. So a variety of experience there. You have to take your pick amongst those. Let's talk about some specialist uh, results now. And we can kick off with ECOFIN Global Utilities and Infrastructure. We're moving into the alternative asset space. Ticker EGL. And they've had six-month interims to the 31st of March. That's right. Their NAV total return was up 13.7% in that period. And they have various comparator indices that they look at. But certainly the MSCI World Utilities Index was up 15.5% in that time. The share price total return came in at 14.1% and they paid dividends totaling 3.5p. But their performance was driven equally between their European and North American parts of the portfolio, uh, while their small allocation to emerging markets actually detracted. But they made the point that uh, the European part of the portfolio outperformed due to a material exposure to renewables, developers, and those companies benefiting from higher power prices. The gearing stood about 13% at the end of March. And also they made the comment that they expect to see strong revenues from many power companies this year. And that would seem intuitively to make sense. However, the kind of things that they were worried about was the possibility of intervention through price regulation and windfall taxes. And that was seen as, as the biggest risk on in, on a short-term basis. That's a very interesting point, of course, something that, to, to look out for. Since the windfall taxes are very much in the, in the news at the moment, at least the possibility they may be uh, emerging both in this country and elsewhere. 
Let's talk about JLEN Environmental Assets Group, ticker J-L-E-N. They've also put out an NAV at least, and just underline the fact that infrastructure is the kind of place to be at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I think we talked about this one possibly last week or the week before because they brought out NAV guidance and they said, look, you know, when we come to publish our NAV at the end of March, we would expect it to be between about 13 and 15 percent up. As it happens, they came in at 14.5 percent an increase. So the NAV at the end of March was 115 spot 3p. That was up 14.6p. Now, to your point, that reflected the impact of higher power prices though over the portfolio that was up about 5p but also they had a specific situation so they had a couple of projects bioenergy projects that they'd acquired in the summer of last year in other words before we've seen this big step up in power prices and they were still being held at acquisition costs in addition to that they'd had limited fixed price contracts in place in other words they were quite exposed to this rising power curve what that meant is that those two assets, I think they're in Italy, actually, they added about 8.4p to the NAV. So they really did see a boost from those. They also benefited from higher inflation rates and, and changing discount rates and so on and so forth. But certainly that's a big step up in the NAV for JLN Environmental Assets Group. Yeah, so you've been talk- we've been talking here about uh, you know significant double-digit gains uh, for some of these uh, infrastructure and alternative asset trusts. While many equity trusts have been obviously struggling in the current market environment. And now we've got time for one more property trust, and that is Tritax Eurobox, a very interesting one, ticker E-B-O-X, E-Box. They've also had interim results for this six-month period. Yeah, that's right. And actually, a decent set of results, despite which their share prices come off quite a bit this year. So to cover off these results, their EPRA NTA per share was up about 10%. And in total return terms, that came in at 12.4%. So that's the equivalent of the NAV total return. And that compares with an annual target of 9%. So just bear in mind that this is a 12-month period. So what's going on? Well, they've seen the like-for-like rental income down slightly, about 1.5%, but 98% of the assets are income-producing, which 77% are reviewed based on a CPI. So their adjusted earnings per share, that was actually down about 20%, but I think that reflected the fact that they raised additional capital, if memory serves me right. So they've uh, declared dividends of 2.5 cents, and that was in line Uh, with the same period in 2021. But it's a substantial portfolio now. I think it was valued about 1.7 billion euros at the end of the period, and that was up 32%, obviously a number of acquisitions as well. But as I mentioned, it has been derated. I've got it on about a 25% discount or so at the moment. So it's this idea that it does have exposure to Amazon. I think about 9% of its rental rule off the top of my head is exposed to Amazon. And certainly when Amazon came out and said that they were looking to kind of uh, rebase some of their warehousing situation, that hit this sector quite hard. Uh, and we've certainly seen that discount widen out. Yes, it's interesting. I was going to mention this one because it has been quite significant. I mean, the yield on this one is, is what now? It's about 4%, is it? Four and a half or something like that? I don't know uh, what it is. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite puzzling. It moved to such a big discount. The other Tritex Trust, which is primarily UK-based, that's also uh, seen a bit of a derating as well, has it not? Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, to cover off that yield point, that's 3.8% for Tritex Eurobox. And you're right, Big Box, the UK version of this, which is actually an even larger fund, that's been hit a little bit as well. Certainly the ratings come up and that's got a lower yield of about 3.3%. But yeah, I think the kind of the Amazon factor has been quite important here because obviously, I mean, whether it's just Amazon or businesses of that nature, this kind of specialist property fund has benefited 
from the growth in those companies. And obviously, it's been substantial over the last few years for pretty obvious reasons. I think the other factor as well is that within Tritax Eurobox, they have quite a chunk of development uh, land as well. And some of it's more speculative. In other words, they haven't kind of locked people in to leases ahead of uh, developing the new sites. So I suspect the markets, you know, kind of got some concerns about that on a short term view. But yeah, it has been derated heavily. I mean, the other factor which has attracted some headlines the last couple of weeks has been the way that uh, big retailers have uh, generally have been affected, Walmart and so on in the States. Uh, their results were thought to be uh, disappointing because, you know, they've been a stalwart of something you could almost put your money on for all time, put your money into Walmart. But uh, they seem to be feeling the pressure too of these uh, bizarre and rather different economic conditions we're facing at the moment. So always places to worry about. Next week, I hope we'll have some uh, positive news maybe for a week the way we actually see some things go in an upward direction. But uh, for the moment, the bear market grinds on. We might finish with just talking very briefly about um, something which you're participating in, Simon, which is the Shareholder Communication Awards organised by the AIC, very dutifully as an industry representative group. And you, I think, are the chairman of the judges and one of your many, many illustrious uh, commitments you have, Simon. So (laughs) while performance of the investment trust sector has obviously been very uh, disappointing this year, it is important. I think there has been, I think it's fair to say there's been an improvement in the amount of disclosure and the way that many investment trusts now report. They all recognize the need to be more open and uh, provide more information than perhaps sometimes in the past they did. Uh, is that a fair comment? Is that uh, what you've been looking at for when it comes to doling out these, uh, I'm sure, highly prestigious gongs? Very prestigious blocks of wood. No, look, you're right. I mean, uh, communication is, is hugely, hugely important. And I think as an industry, I think we're very aware that um, retail investors have been attracted for various reasons into the sector over the last 10, 15 years or so. And it's so important to be able to explain what's going on, how you're investing, what your outlook is and all the rest of them, put it into language that people understand and have that offered in an in a engaging and concise way. And that's what we're, we're trying to tap into in the, the various awards that we hand out on an annual basis. And there's obviously various different aspects of it. But I think one of the things that's quite noticeable as well, it's not just a case of making sure you've got a half decent fact sheet and your report and accounts has got a few pictures in it. I mean, I think people are looking at more sophisticated ways to be able to kind of communicate their story. So a lot more kind of digital media kind of case studies coming through. And I suspect that's a trend that continues. But it's quite clear that people are putting an awful lot of time and energy into this and, and, and rightly so. So, yeah, very happy to hand out the awards. And uh, I just happened to notice that one of the companies we talked about today, or at least won an award, I think. I hope I'm right about this. Am I right about this? Uh, that would be uh, JLEN Environmental Assets Group, or was it another JLEN Trust? I can't remember. No, you're right. It was JLEN, JLEN uh, Environmental Assets. They got a, an award for best ESG communication, which uh, was well deserved. And uh, obviously, again, they'd put quite a lot of time and energy into kind of communicating how they approached ESG in general. I mean, frankly, given what they do, you'd hope that they would get that one right. But it is quite a competitive subsector. There's a lot of investment companies now uh, spending quite a bit of time thinking that through and conveying their message. So, um, you know, well done them, basically. Is it fair to say that, uh, you know, annual reports and so on from investment trusts, they are getting bigger, but that may not necessarily be an improvement. It may be just there's a lot more regulatory information you have to stick in there. But it is still the primary, well, I guess along with websites now, it's the primary means by which you communicate to your 
shareholders and uh, I guess you should put a bit of effort into it. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, with the reports and accounts, there's a lot of stuff that has to go in that's not there on, on a whim. You have to cover off a huge amount of stuff. In fact, I think I caught up with uh, Peter Spiller this week, the long-standing and really long-standing 40-odd years now with Capital Gearing Trust. I think he made the point, I'm going to get this story slightly wrong, but the first report and accounts that Capital Gearing kind of submitted, I think was about four pages long or two pieces of paper or, or something of that nature, uh, you know, of which one was left intentionally blank. I don't know. I suspect it's probably over 100 pages long now, and that won't be at uh, Peter's instigation. So there is an awful lot of stuff that has to be covered off. But despite that, it's still, I think, a good opportunity for boards, the investment managers to convey what they're trying to do. And I think, you know, just to go back to Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, I mean, clearly having a very difficult time at the moment, but they have been very consistent with their message in what they're trying to achieve. And I think that's the key thing. I think it's important that people understand what that kind of vehicle is trying to do and the way that that money is run. And that enables them to make better investment decisions. I think this is what it's all about. You know, frankly, a Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust might not be suitable for a large number of people because of the way that they run their money and because of the time investment time horizons involved. But if they can convey that message, I think that's very, very helpful. Yes, it doesn't obviously affect the performance of the trust, but it does mean that uh, you can build loyalty and shareholder support if you explain what you're trying to do and then uh, you don't change it later on. That would be uh, certainly true of Scottish Mortgage. And I can think of one or two other trusts that uh, put a lot of effort into annual reports. You know, Polar Capital Technology would be a good example where the, the manager, Ben Rogoff, writes a, a very long and detailed piece every year, which is you know incredibly important in helping to communicate what the, what the trust is trying to do. So good on all of them. That's excellent news. Perhaps uh, in this area that communication standards are improving. I think that brings us to the end, Simon. It's been another tough week, as you said, and uh, we'll look forward to maybe some better news. So we've got the uh, cricket season, another interest of yours, coming up. A new captain, new coach, new perhaps regime. <laughs> Their results have been pretty dismal for the last, the test team anyway, been pretty dismal for a while. So let's hope that that is also perks up and at least gives us something to cheer on this summer. So let's talk again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.